all these, you know, modern technologies. Should be very careful with this because uh, we don't know where it can be useful, where it can be harmful. So the most important is simulate the survival type of situation, you know, to cause the body to believe somehow that there is a danger to you. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're once again on location in Orlando, Florida at iITSEC, the world's largest modeling and simulation conference. And this time we're speaking with Dr. Maria Koshevnikov, cognitive neuroscientist whose research focuses on examining neural mechanisms of visual imagery, as well as in exploring ways to train visualization abilities. We'll be talking with her today about mindfulness during times of high stress, immersive environments and their impact on training, and accessing states of enhanced cognition. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Kozhevnikov, could you give us kind of your background for our audience and, and what you're working on now? I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, um, and also I'm doing human-computer interaction research. And my interest is in how to enhance human cognition to understand potential of human mind. And my research is going into two directions, which might seem quite different, but in reality they kind of target the same goal to understand potential of human mind. One is how to enhance human cognition with modern technologies such as augmented mixed virtual realities and another direction how to enhance using ancient uh, concentrative meditative techniques. Now that's really interesting and you you have a absolutely fascinating background um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about because we've when we talk about cognition, we've started to hear more and more about mindfulness. Um, and you've done significant research into the concept of post-mindfulness. What is post-mindfulness, and how does it affect people who have to operate in really high-stress, high-intensity environments like Army soldiers do? I study very different types of concentrative meditation, which actually is the opposite of mindfulness. So the problem with mindfulness approach that all meditation kind of reduced to mindfulness, which is not true. So mindfulness is a great technique to induce relaxation in someone and to reduce stress. But this is only one way, you know, to one way to meditate. There are very different types of meditation, which I'm trying to show in my research, very different. They're trying to target stress. This is a different aspect of our autonomic nervous system. So they're trying actually to induce stress, but in a controlled way. So the person actually, during the stress, can take advantage of the state to enhance cognitive capacity because during stress we have kind of extra energy from our body to deal with the stress, which enhance our physical and um, mental capacity for a while during the stress period while being in the total control of this stress. So for example, martial art, it has nothing close. It's nothing close to mindfulness. It's a completely different meditation. It does not induce relaxation because the relaxation when you're going into fight 
it's not appropriate. You cannot fight in a relaxed state. So it's induced stress, but it teaches how to control it at the same way. So during stress, you're completely focused on a task and you know what you're doing. You're not going into panic and you take advantage from this stressful situation instead of, you know, to freeze or to panic. So again, mindfulness is not appropriate for army at all because it actually works more for individuals who are in stress and cannot handle, who experience anxiety and cannot handle anxiety. It brings you into state what is called in neuroscience parasympathetic activation or rest and digest. So it brings you in a very relaxed state, reducing stress, which is not appropriate if you're going, you know, to a battlefield or you're going for a mission, this stress is not appropriate. So like martial art again, this is what I'm saying beyond mindfulness. I call them arousal-based meditation. Arousal, in technical sense, defense arousal. This is a state of autonomic system, kind of a good stress. Stress that you can handle, not in panic, but stress which you can handle and be focused on a task during this kind of state. So with that good stress, is that kind of what you would think of um, I saw that you had written part of, you know, about uh, the adrenaline rush. Is that is that part of that good stress, that part of that fight or flight? Fight or flight, this is uh, sympathetic. So parasympathetic, this is rest and digest. This is what mindfulness is doing. And then we have sympathetic nervous system, which is uh, fight or flight. So now arousal, this is kind of preparation to fight and flight. So this is what's colloquially called adrenaline rush experience. Scientifically, noradrenaline hormone released into the bloodstream, so, uh, which is different from stress, because bad stress, it's cortisol. It's stress hormone, which releases into the bloodstream. If cortisol released into the bloodstream, then you, you cannot really handle the task. So you need a noradrenaline released into the bloodstream, so you need arousal. So arousal is preparation for fight or flight response, where you pump using this noradrenaline, all your cognitive and mental resources to meet the demand of a fight. That's really interesting. And I think it's your point is really well made. Uh, something that will be extremely insightful for us, but to our audience as well, is it's counterintuitive to how we think about um, you want to relax. You know, you think about any meditation, you think of relaxing and rain raindrops and, you know, uh, really getting into that meditative state, um, but don't think as much about needing to get into that high intensity, that action uh, kind of vibe. Um, you, you had spoke down here at ITSEC uh, 22 down in Orlando about the effect of environment and immersivity uh, on perspective-taking task performance. Can you elaborate on that, and why was there this seeming correlation between an increase in the immersion of being in it and then all of a sudden there's also an increase in uh, egocentric errors. And for our audience, can you kind of explain as well uh, egocentric errors? There are two ways uh, people can process information about space around them. Uh, one is, I call it allocentric. So when, for example, your location around this table is uh, encoded in, in my brain in relation to your location. So... This is allocentric now, but I can encode it also egocentrically in relation to my own body. You sitting in front of me without respect to any other people or object and environment. So, and this is this is important distinction because some profession tapping egocentric system, and those are different systems in the brain. Egocentric, allocentric, they're overlapping but still distinct. 
So I might have very good egocentric skills, but I might not be able to encode anything allocentrically. For example, those people who are great navigators, though they usually have high egocentric ability, but they might not have allocentric abilities. They might be not very successful with, let's say, like, you know, mental rotating, like engineering some object around them, because they're really successful in encoding everything in relation to their own body, but not in relation, space in relation to let's say, in front of them. So why it's important? So, for example, for air pilot, egocentric skills, extremely important. For air traffic controller, allocentric skills, extremely important. Because, right, for what's important for a traffic controller, this is airplanes to airplanes location, so they will not collide. For air pilot, what's important to understand where he or she is in space located while they control an airplane. So now, uh, these two systems, bring to the cause different errors. So for example, if I encode space egocentrically, I usually, if task is difficult, might easily confuse left and right, back and front. But you're not doing this error if you're performing the task uh, allocentrically because there is no back and front, right? So it's usually, so actually you can, you can see that when a person going to completely egocentric encoding, you can see that the mistakes they made, they mostly confusion front and back, especially back is difficult because evolutionarily we don't know what is behind us. Uh, and when, like for air traffic controller, these kind of mistakes, they're irrelevant because they actually process whatever's on the screen about airplanes in front of them. So that's why I was saying that the more uh, egocentric, the more this reflection egocentric error, the more egocentric encoding, more egocentric error. Now, what we found in this study, we found that uh, environment should be completely immersive to cause egocentric processing. So for example, you are in a dome, we just saw domes here, right, in this uh, exhibition. You don't see any frames of the screen. You see the immersive dome. You're completely enclosed in environment. You're part of the scene. What you found that while you're watching this kind of simulation or you're part of the scene, you feel yourself part of the scene, you actually encode everything egocentrically. Now, we also saw different types of simulation. They have like three screens, right? Or just one large screen. These screens do not cause immersivity, feeling of immersivity. Anytime you see a frame, you encode everything allocentrically in relation to the frame. So uh, that's the research that we were doing, and it has a lot of implication because, for example, if you want to train a traffic controller or if you want to make the task easier, you not put them in front of three-dimensional stereoscopic dome because you actually force them to encode the location of planes in relation to their body, which is completely irrelevant. So for a traffic controller, you need a big screen with a clear frame. So really to support allocentric tasks they're doing. And vice versa, for a flight simulator, you don't want this uh, screen, you know, like frames to be seen. You want really a dome. So that to, to kind of support the real egocentric processing, a pilot's experience in real world. So um, that's, that's kind of the findings of that research. That's really interesting. And, and as you were talking about that, I was trying to determine whether I looked at things more allocentrically or egocentrically. And I was thinking about Luke and I, as he, as he said, we're here at ITSEC trying to walk the exhibition floor and find specific booths. <laughs> and we failed, I'd say, pretty miserably at it um, throughout the day 
going from one booth to another. Yeah, absolutely. We were we were having a lot of problem with overlap between the egocentric and the allocentric yeah. because we couldn't match up the map with where we were yeah. in space. Yeah. So we have a, we have a lot of work to do there. Um, you also spoke about accessing the states of enhanced cognition and the implications of that for military mission preparation. Can you explain to our audience about those experiments and your findings there? Yes, so this is related to what I was talking before about the states of uh, adrenaline rush. So I call them, they called in literature the states of flow, flow experience, so I call them enhanced cognitive states. Again, I'm talking about flow, but I call them enhanced cognitive states because I really measure them using kind of scientific methodology and looking at uh, cognitive parameters, not, you know, self-reports as usually done in flow literature. So um, it's all related to this noradrenaline um, hormone induced into the blood during arousal. So what happened if person, trained person who, expert who capable of dealing with stress, uh, meets some kind of stressful situation? Uh, the noradrenaline start to pump into the bloodstream and they all the, so the body preparing to fight or flight to the best action in this situation. So um, physical capacity, enhanced, so the body gives you extra latent resources to survive. Situation should be serious, you know, it should be dangerous, so the body gives you access which usually you cannot access. It gives you access to extra cognitive and physical resources. So blood starts to pump to the brain, you know, like usually you cannot even increase blood flow to the brain. Even if you, the head stem doesn't increase, it's strictly regulated. But here, the blood kind of opens the channel, the blood starts to pump, your attentional capacity, cognitive capacity, temporarily enhanced. Again, this is, this is a trick to survive, which is used in martial art techniques. So they, they actually meditate to get themselves into this kind of um, state, you know, so the adrenaline starts to pump. They have these uh, extra strengths, physical and mental, and then they go to fight while they kind of in this superior mode of functioning. And they also have all kind of breathing exercises to prolong the state or to quit the state because the state is actually might be harmful for the body if prolonged too much, if a person not trained to handle this kind of uh, states. That was one thing I was going to ask you was, you know, when you hear that and you think about increased blood flow to the brain, increased cognition from that, really getting into that fight mode, you know, the question then becomes from people, why don't we do this all the time? If we're, you know, sending, if we're sending soldiers in to fight, I want them to be in the zone, in that flow always. But, you know, what are the repercussions of that? If you try to, if you try to stay in that state, um, do you, you know, can you explain maybe what, what happens to the body in that case and why can't we sustain it? Okay. So like, let's video gamers. I was talking about first person shooter gamers. Uh, they, can spontaneously get into the states, but uh, the problem is they're not trained to sustain, they're not trained to access the states in a safe and guaranteed way. So it might happen, it might not happen. Now, um, I also study condition. There should be specific condition. It's not that easy. You, even if you're a video gamer, you go to play, it should be a specific game with specific parameters. It should be a really survival type of game because, again, 
I mean, you need, it need to induce some kind of stressful situation, a survival type of situation. And then uh, their skill should match perfectly because if the game is too difficult, there is no there is no flow because they cannot handle. If it's too easy, it's the same, there is no flow because it should be kind of optimal challenge. They should kind of, but they still should have required capacities to deal with this challenge, you know? So it should be optimal situation. So so first of all, it's not guaranteed they will get into flow. Second, uh, the flow state very easily can go into stress mode. So you start with flow, but you cannot sustain it if you're not trained. You can sustain it maybe for 10 minutes, but then, you know, certain percent of our gamers, they, after five minutes or 10 minutes, they show stress response already. Stress response means it's already harmful for your heart. It's already really harmful. Now, those who are capable of sustaining for a while this arousal state, the problem with them was that uh, they were not capable of exiting the states. So we check the heart rate, heart rate variability, specific parameter we check to understand what's experience, stress, or arousal. And until the next day, the heart was not back to the baseline. It's very harmful again. So it can actually cause heart failure. Because again, what I mentioned, you know, the system, the body gives you access to latent resources, but it's not for free. You know, after the, <laughs> after the state ended, you completely deplete it. You completely deplete it. You know, like visual artists, they also go into the States and they can paint for like days, but then for weeks lying down and cannot even, you know, do anything because the body completely depleted. So you really need to know for how long you need this state, why you need it, you know, because you don't want to deplete your body and uh, how to access it safely. Like again, in in meditations, uh, you have uh, specific breathing exercises post post state to bring the heart into normal into baseline level you know to quit to go into relaxation mode quickly you know so not the next day because you cannot sustain this heart uh walk i mean in this accelerated mode that that long so it's really about control that's why video gamers cannot get out of the state they play in for weeks and then they crash which is which is absolutely not good that's just absolutely fascinating because I think we've all, uh, or most of us, have been in that situation of maybe a life or death type situation, and you get into that um, flow that maybe you're sustaining for, whether it be you know two minutes when you're in a near, you know, really near miss in traffic, uh, you know, high speed, something like that, or a longer situation where it's maybe 15, 20 minutes. I had a situation this last week that I felt, you know, kind of in that danger zone. And it took me time to exit out of that. I couldn't get out of the that state. Um, couldn't even fall asleep that night because I felt like you know just so <laughs> so in that um, you know going from the flow to the stress. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And do you think you know one of the things you looked at was um, through those first person shooters, and you talked about um, you know what what stimulated that the arousal um, of the first person shooter or third person adventure game um, and, and it being focused on survival. Do you think there's a gap then between though what they would experience in regards to the temporal perspectives, the cognitive abilities enhanced, um, and the attention uh, that those players experienced in the first person shooter and, and adventure games, and then what warfighters would experience where they might be skilled absolutely at whatever task their their forces a, a rifleman a 
tank driver, a you know artillery uh, officer. So they're very skilled in that. So they're you know at that that right level of difficulty you discussed. But the environment's going to be very different from that for them from someone who's playing a game um, in that they're going to have that very real physical threat of danger, uh, threat of loss of life right there in front of them. And additionally, they're going to have not just playing a game, but all sorts of responsibilities and, and things going through their minds um, throughout this. So they're not just in the game, they're you know trying to survive and achieve the mission. Do you think there's a large gap between what they would experience in that cognition space? Um, so let's say you're interested to bring them into, into the flow of the zone state before going into mission, right? So uh, the best way, the games, just want to explain, the games is just one way to study these states and how to get into them because uh, the flow states not studied well until now. I mean, my research was the first even which started to look at the neural and cognitive correlates of these states, scientific correlates. It was mostly kind of popular science before that. Uh, why? Because you really need to create somehow this dangerous situation, realistic survival type of situation. And how are you going to study this in the lab? How you connect these people to EG, EKG, whatever? So um, I... Even with meditators, it's very difficult because, you know, with those who are doing this arousal-based meditation, it's much more difficult to access them and much more difficult to do a controlled study, and they don't want to go to the lab, and also it's kind of difficult. So um, gamers, video games, again, not all video games, but some. Some video games do nothing, like third-person shooter do nothing. Uh, only first-person shooter. So we started with video game. Why we started with games? Because they capable of simulating kind of war-like environment, right? By the way, those meditation that Tibetan doing, they also visualize deities with war-like attribute, with blood, with, you know, st stepping on human corpses and so on, because the same idea to cause adrenaline rush. So this very kind of aggressive war type uh, visualization. So first-person shooter, kind of, you know, you shoot, you can be kill yourself. So we pick first-person shooter, and we found that, indeed, it can bring you to flow. Not third-person shooter, which was very interesting. And then we started to look at different features of the games, which can actually induce the state, which do nothing for the state. So it's not necessarily should be first-person shooter. Escape rooms. Escape rooms, which uh, you need to survive, right? Like, you know, like realistic escape rooms also bring you to the state of flow. So what is important here to important to simulate as realistically as possible dangerous situation, you know? And it's really important uh, to make it from first person perspective. Why? Because you cannot induce adrenaline rush if it's related to someone else, not to your own body. So the body will not give you access to your latent resources. If somebody near you is, you know, in danger, it, you should be in danger directly to get the access to these uh, latent resources in the brain. So first person activity, dangerous survival type of activity. It not necessarily should be shooting. It could be kind of decision making, you know, like tactical and also could be strategical team, you know, so at teams that are doing decision-making, they also can get into flow as long as the situation, as long as you can simulate dangerous situation, which is 
the best as close as possible to the task, to what they're doing, in which the experts, because, you know, it should be engaging somehow, because not the person without gaming skills probably will not get into flow anyway. It doesn't matter what you simulate. So, so what I'm trying to say is if you really want to train, you know, like soldiers, military, we want to do simulation as close as possible to what they will experience, you know, in virtual reality, augmented reality, to where they're going, to the missions they're going to, to make it as much as kind of engaging and dangerous, you know, and that's the way, and make it from first-person perspective, to actually to induce a state of law which could be really useful later in the field. I'm thinking a whole bunch of things now. That's really, that's really, really interesting and based on a lot of the stuff we saw at ITSEC when we were down here. So some of the questions I have in my head just from what you said there, where's the threshold for that fidelity, though, where it crosses from being a game to where the, the user actually feels like they are in danger? Is it a visual thing? Is it auditory? I mean, how how high does the fidelity have to be for, for someone to feel that? Fidelity of the game? Yeah. That's interesting. It shouldn't be very high at all, you know, because we compare very realistic, immersive games uh, with 2D, you know, first person. It doesn't matter, you know, as long as, uh, um, as long as they really feel there is a threat to them or can kind of get immersed psychologically into this game. So it didn't matter, actually, you know, whether it's immersive, realistic, or whether it's first-person shooter on the computer screen, as long as they kind of were expert players and felt this danger. So the most important is simulate the survival type of situation, you know, to cause the body to believe somehow that there is a danger to you. So I, I think that's really interesting, and it makes me wonder, when you were researching this, did you find people who were prone to be more emotional usually, the events um, maybe stress them out more or um, have have difficulty processing things. Um, did you find that they got into those states quicker um, than people who tended to be calmer, so to speak, or could process that? I heard that in ancient Rome, there were picking soldiers they were, whether they blushing or getting paled, you know? So those who were blushing, this is arousal because uh, the blood flow to the, to the head increased. So if uh, they're blushing in some situation, it means they kind of more prone to these arousal states rather than panic or freezing response or stress. So there is clearly individual differences. Some people can handle stress well, you know, they're going into arousal, they prepare all their resources to fight, while other people just freeze or in panic straight to the stress. Of course, it depends on how much cognitive resources you have and so on, how well you can handle the situation, what is the situation, but there are clearly individual differences here. And I know the research is very early, but have you found it all from, from all this research and capturing, is there a way to stimulate this chemically or, you know, in, in any kind of way that, you know, essentially gets outside of going through that experience or the meditative state kind of that we talked about, is there a way to induce it? Because people are then thinking, okay, how do I get to this state uh, at the push of a button almost? Okay, you cannot, that's an interesting thing. You cannot induce it chemically, like pharmacologically. You cannot induce it 
using any neural stimulant. Why? Because you don't know the exact amount. So you, you give the induction and immediately the person experiences stress or experience maybe like one minute arousal and then gone, you know. So you cannot, they even cannot study. That's why the study with the study with humans limited. The study on this arousal states mostly with animals because by even given pharmacological induction, you already altered this noradrenaline response. So you can you can you can cause some kind of enhanced state for for a little little bit, but it would not be not even close in intensity because you cannot control. You can you, you don't know the right dosage. You know you give too much, the person is in stress. You give too little, you will get a little bit, and then it will be harmful because you know it's not natural. So there is no control element. You cannot maximize on this state. You don't know how fast the person can really go. So there is no way to do it. That, that's a problem. That's why we have no studies, neural studies with, uh, with arousal with humans. So all those drinks at like uh, uh, fitness performance places are, uh, are not actually getting you to that kind of place. It, it can give you to some place, right? All these uh, drugs. <laughs> it can give you something, but, but it's, it will not be that kind of that intensity, that strength, and it will be harmful and you can it will be completely uncontrollable because here you can control how much you want how long you want when to exit and with all these drugs you just very easy to cause stress now it's also again dangerous for body if it's just drug it's dangerous for body now if it's real flow it's actually could be very kind of good for the brain because the blood flow to the brain refresh all your organs, you know, it could be kind of medical stimulant. But the pharmacological, again, they're not really causing adrenaline rush. So um, it's a different, what's going on different and you have harmful more than help, more than useful uh, state. I think I'm relieved to hear that because I think <laughs> synthesizing a chemical injection, I, I, there's like super villain origin story yeah. there. So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> yeah. we didn't get to that. Yeah. Uh, but you never know what the future holds. Uh, so this last question is kind of open-ended for you. You can take it anywhere you want. So based on your experience and your perspective, what do you think the U.S. Army and the larger military and Department of Defense need to be thinking about more in your areas of research? It's very general, but I think they should, because now, again, it becomes very popular to use these three-dimensional immersive virtual realities, augmented realities, all these, you know, modern technologies. should be very careful with this because uh, we don't know why it can be useful, why it can be harmful. For example, uh, as I mentioned, for a traffic controller, should not do these nice domes or immersive displays. For air pilots, you should be very careful what kind of displays you actually you know, create or design. So now the same about uh, video games. You know, we did a lot of studies to find out not all video games or not all games causing the flow. Some do, some do not. Immersivity or virtual, you know, real, realism, fidelity is not as critical as, you know, other aspects. So before to going into all these complicated technologies, the question, research question, we need more HCI, human competent interaction research. What kind of displays we need for particular training, for particular task, for particular activities? So kind of to focus more on psychological research to understand how people, I mean, perception in different display, human perception is different. We need to understand the human competent interaction before we going into all these extremely complicated and fancy technologies and start to use them for training soldiers and military. I think that's a great answer because we kind of come uh, try to solve these types of problems in sort of a one-size-fits-all thing where we think the more realistic, the more immersed, 
the better off the result will be. And it sounds like that's not always the question. Yep. We need to kind of piecemeal it in a way that is specific to what we're trying to do. So that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I think now anytime I talk to someone who's going to talk virtual reality and even <laughs> extended reality, I'm going to say, okay, uh, what's your overlap between egocentric, allocentric? What are you targeting? Um, because I, I, I never really uh, imagined it in that in that kind of perspective. I think that's really important. I really appreciate it. Dr. Kozhevnikov, we could talk to you probably for hours about this because I'm just beyond fascinated. This is amazing work. Um, but uh, we're going to transition, though, to our rapid-fire questions that we like to ask all our guests. Uh, and it just tells, us a little, it tells our audience a little more about you. Um, so what is a technology or trend that keeps you up at night? <laughs> um, I like to learn about new technologies, even though, as I mentioned, not all of them I think might be useful for the purposes they design, but I like to learn, I like to read about new technologies, about different types of, you know, augmented mixed virtual realities coming out, so read the news, go to this kind of exhibition, I'm really interested in this kind of stuff. Again, from my perspective, I'm looking always for something that can potentially train people to enhance their cognition in a particular situation, so I really like to learn about new technologies just coming up on the market. And are there any of those that scare you? Okay, to be honest, uh, I am scared about uh, introducing a lot of augmented and virtual reality into our life, probably because we're talking about perception, right? And uh, um, it can completely kind of it can it can make the things more difficult, you know. So even in terms of perception, even in terms of allocentric, egocentric, what I was talking about, you think you're doing something good by introducing realistic stuff, but in reality, you know, it can go completely wrong. It can interact in very different way with our perceptual capacities, and at the end, we can completely kind of uh, confuse people, you know, in their mental world and their perceptual senses instead of you know doing something good or train them in something. So, yeah. I think that's really interesting. As techno optimists, sometimes we get carried away with thinking yeah. this is so great. Um, but there is a, a dangerous aspect to that. And uh, goodness knows that we have enough trouble with critical thinking right now. Exactly. And exactly. Re perception yeah. of reality. Exactly. Yeah, perception of reality is get us even farther away from perception of reality. <laughs> Not closer. We think it's closer, but it's farther away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to be a big supporter of the internet, and I think it was a huge mistake. <laughs> I understand the irony of this podcast. Too. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, what is something about you that you're willing to share uh, on the podcast that most people might not know? I really like to travel, you know? I really tried to travel to different places. I did a lot of field studies in um, in Asian countries with uh, these arousal-based meditations in monasteries, like remote monasteries in Tibet, Nepal, uh, Thailand, uh, Bhutan. So it was very dangerous trips, actually, to be honest, in these countries. But maybe it's adrenaline rush, some kind that I experienced during this trip. But I really like. I really like to travel. I really like to visit these places. Really like to learn about them. What was your your favorite destination that you've been to? It depends, you know, in terms of um, practitioners, 
Bhutan, they have the best practitioners ever. I mean, really strong, uh, who like for 30, 40 years in retreats, meditate in these particular types of meditations. So in this sense, Bhutan probably is the most interesting place. Uh, but um, in general, like I like Nepal because it's way more friendly and vibrant. And you know, so. I would be surprised <laughs> if you weren't the first guest we had on that's actually been to Tibet. Yes, <laughs> that is something else. It um, was not Tibet actually, because uh, not in Tibet, Lhasa, not not in that uh, place, but in Amdo, it's Eastern Tibet, uh, which is actually officially China, but that's. Amdo area has historically those practitioners the best for these arousal types of meditation in historically from Tibet. So I have been saying Eastern part of historical Tibet. Historical Tibet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's just incredible and uh, a little jealous of some of your travels. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, uh, we get told sometimes this is our toughest question. What is your favorite movie? <laughs> I don't know, even it's difficult to say. Right now I'm watching Westworld, this TV series about artificial intelligence. I really like it a lot, you know, really like it. So, I mean, probably for now, this is my favorite, but, you know, it changes from time to time. That that show's amazing. What are you, how far through are you? Are you on season one? I just one finished or? second season. Second season, okay. Yeah, I, it will, that second season will melt your brain. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it raises all the question talk today here, almost almost the same question. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense for perception of reality versus yeah. advice, you know. Uh, same same reason I, I really enjoyed and was terrified by Black Mirror. Um, some of the episodes there about, uh, you know, immersion in, into that virtual reality that was far past anything, um, you know, we have right now. Um, but absolutely interesting i just want to th- say thank you ma'am for for making the time to talk to us um i think our listeners are going to find this absolutely just fascinating <laughs> um where where can people follow your work at my, i have a website my email website here so i can send you all the information later well thank you so much for the time and we really appreciate it thanks for listening to the convergence i'd like to thank our guest dr maria koshepnikov for talking with us you can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. <laughs>